You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. All right, everybody, happy hump day and welcome back to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. And uh, today, I've been wanting to get this guy on the podcast for some time now. He's the editor of Realtree.com, or one of the editors of Realtree.com. His name is Josh Honeycutt, and uh, this is just a good old-fashioned BS session. And we talk about turkey hunting, we talk about deer hunting, we talk about conservation, um, and we talk a little bit about everything and he even shares some stories with us but this is a really good podcast um and I, I hate to say it but this is probably one of my top 10 I, i've i've done a lot of podcasts and uh, for some reason this one just is really good and uh, i'm uh, i'm happy with the way it turned out and uh huge shout out to josh honeycutt for coming on uh on the show today and we're gonna get to that real soon and I'm going to keep this uh, intro really short today. Um, Ozonics, okay? Um, you guys have heard me talk about ozone technology, uh, specifically uh, using Ozonics. Um, check out ozonicshunting.com and just go to the website if you haven't used any type of ozone in your in your hunting scent control regimen. Uh, I'm telling you right now, whether you use it in home in their dry wash bag and uh, in like the 230 unit or if you get the 300 unit and bring it into the stand with you i'm telling you the the ozone technology works straight up right uh, it allows you to wash your clothes less throughout the season um, my personal experience it, it has allowed me to have more interactions with deer whether that's on the way to the stand in the stand or just knowing that my clothes are scent free you know when i get dressed every morning and uh, every morning or before every hunt so um the, what i want to say is just go to ozonicshunting.com and just educate yourself about the product because i really think that for guys like us who work a lot who have families who don't get to go out and hunt as much as we would like Every single sit in the timber is important, and uh, I feel that with an Ozonics, it just increases the odds of um, every encounter, right? Whether you're a meat hunter, whether you're the, the quote-unquote, it's brown, it's down, or whether you're chasing, you know, mature deer, uh, this thing, you know, this unit, this ozone generator plays a role in that, in, in that routine, right? So, uh, Go check it out, ozonicshunting.com. And if you have any questions, man, just send me a DM and uh, I may point you to the website itself where I might be able to answer uh, answer a couple quick questions. So uh, check that out. Other than that, I say uh, we get done with the talking and we get into more talking with Josh Honeycutt in this BS session. All right. On the phone with me right now, Mr. Josh Honeycutt. How you doing, man? I'm doing great. How are you, Dan? I'm doing good, man. I'm doing good. Have Have you had the opportunity to get out and do some turkey hunting this year? Yeah, I have. I've uh, been fortunate to get out there a bit. Yet. <clears throat> Excuse me, but uh, it's been a good turkey season. I know some people have said that uh, it's been a it's been a rough one for them, but it's been a pretty good one for me so far. I guess I've just had a little bit of luck on my side. Yeah, and I think uh, 
I don't know, a whitetails, right? We can sit down and we can really evaluate how they move and what they do and, and you know, uh, you know, bring some analysis to the rut. But turkey hunting, every time I try to do that, I get outsmarted by an animal that has a brain the size of my thumbnail. So, you know what I mean? And it just makes you mad. (laughs) Well, you know, it's one of those things that I I think their brain is just so small, they don't even know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. So it's just complete randomness. No, I didn't mean that. I I don't want to offend all the turkey hunters out there because I die while, while I, you know, white tails are my primary passion. I still love to chase uh the wild turkey every spring and have a lot of respect for the species uh you're right they do have a uh, a keen way of making us feel really dumb uh <laughs> a lot of the times so it was funny. love the wild turkey it was it was funny this year we walk into the timber i make like five calls bird flies out of the roost comes up the ridge my wife shoots it at like 605 right six six something in the morning right the next mm-hmm. three days, here I am running around like literally a chicken with my head cut off, trying to get on these birds and uh, just basically get outsmarted every time uh, because they were henned up pretty, you know, pretty bad, and uh, they were gobbling, and they would respond, and then they'd hit the ground, and they would they'd be really quiet, and then they'd light up again a couple hours later, and then they'd kind of go back down, and uh, I ended up personally not getting one, but. Uh, I don't know. It's something that every spring I love. I, I, I look forward to, like I look forward to the rut. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, and that's, that was my season last year. Uh, last season was probably the toughest season I've ever had. And, uh, you know, cause generally I hunt here in Kentucky is kind of where I primarily hunt, but you know, a lot of you, a lot of the times I'll try to, you know, I'll do an out of state hunt somewhere. And, uh, I, I did not kill a turkey anywhere last year. Uh, this year I've been fortunate. I've, I filled both of my Kentucky tags and I've uh, been, you know, present and helped other people, uh, fill their tags in Kentucky too this year. Uh, it was pretty, pretty cool this past, you know, just this past weekend, uh, I was able to take a 41 year old man out and uh, he got his first bird. So, oh, awesome. you know, and I, I enjoy that even more than, then I do shoot one in the face myself. You know, I enjoy yeah. seeing other people get out there and, and, um, uh, you know, enjoy, you know, what God put on earth for us. So absolutely. And it's, uh, it's, uh, it's been a good season so far, but yeah, I understand that tough season that you're talking about. You know, that was me last year. Uh, did not fill a tag and, and that was probably the first time I didn't fill a tag and I don't know how many years. So it, it, it can be tough. And, you know, sometimes those years they, they crop up on us. Absolutely. All right. So what's the turkey population like in Kentucky? Is it pretty good? You know, you know, for where I am right now, it's really good. Um, I know there are a lot of people, you know, not just in Kentucky, but throughout the country that are harping that their numbers are down. The turkeys aren't, you know, as populated as they once were. Uh, I know I, I have, some, I've not hunted in, in Western Kentucky uh, myself, um, at least in recent, you know, in the recent years. Um, I have some buddies that are out there though, in the Western half of the state and I'm kind of right in the central. I'm just pretty much, if you split Kentucky down the middle, I'm right in the central part of the state. And, but the Western half of the state, a lot of people are talking about how their turkey populations are down. Um, but where I'm at, I mean, we're seeing as many or more turkeys than we ever have, um, for most of our properties, you know, it's, 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 a you know, it's as good as it's ever been. So, I mean, like anything, like with whitetails, as you know, um, you know, turkey populations can be extremely localized and they can be doing really well in one property. And then you go five down, uh, five miles down the road and they're doing horribly on another property. Yeah. Uh, and it's all, as you, you know, as, as anybody who's familiar with turkey hunting out there knows, it can be anything from, um, big predators affecting them like bobcats and coyotes and whatever to, to, you know, what's more common which is nest predators like skunks and raccoons and stuff like that. You know, disease is a big thing with, with turkeys just as it is with whitetails. But, uh, yeah, I mean, we're, we're, where we are here in south-central Kentucky, our turkey population is doing really well. Yeah. I tell you, that's something I noticed very blatantly this year, right? I mean, it was in my face. I, I could walk into this place where my wife uh, shot her turkey this year, and all it would take is just a couple, you know, hen yelps, and the whole valley would light up. 
And that didn't happen this year. And I'm talking even during bad weather. So I don't know if it was, you know, just that bad luck scenario where, like you said, the nest predators got to them. But as a lot of us know here in the Midwest, we got hammered this winter with extremely cold mm-hmm. temperatures and lots of snow. And um, any ground bird's worst enemy is ice, you know, for quail and pheasants and, uh, and turkeys. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got a lot of ice as well. And uh, I'm not sure if that didn't uh, put a damper on the, the population, at least where I'm at. Sure. Yeah, we're not in an area because I'm far enough south that we don't see a lot of winter kill, either for turkeys or deer here in Kentucky. I'm not saying that it doesn't happen because it does, but um, the the scale as to how much it happens uh, compared to what you guys do, I would say the ratio for winter kill uh, here is much, much lower than, yeah. than where you guys are at. We, we receive pretty cold temperatures and sometimes even, you know, experience long spells of cold temperatures in winter, but it's nothing like what you guys experience. And we don't have, and it's not really the cold temps, as you said, that, that hurt them. It's, it's the ground covered yeah. from snow and ice that, that gets them. It's not really the temperatures. And we don't usually have enough, because uh, because here in Kentucky, our, our, you know, it can be, you know, snowing one day and 80 degrees the next. And, you know, usually <clears throat> when we get snow or ice, it's not on the ground long enough for it to really affect the animals that bad. So, yeah, yeah I definitely sympathize with you there. Uh, not because I experience it a whole lot myself, but because that can make the hunting extremely tough. And hopefully hopefully the, the, the wildlife will bounce back quick from that up there. Absolutely. All right, so we are going to continue this bs session but uh before we get into you know the rest of the podcast i want to chat with you a little bit about you know you've already mentioned that you live in kentucky so why don't you let us know what do you do for a living yeah so i work as an outdoor communicator Uh, i guess that's what you could call me i mean you could call me a lot of things i guess an outdoor communicator outdoor writer uh an editor you know but but i actually work um, I'm the associate editor and deer hunting editor for Realtree.com, and so I spend my my days working on Realtree.com, uh, just creating content for that website, managing content for it, um, for whether it be working with photography, uh, videography, um, uh, the, the written language, you know, how, whatever medium that, that it is that I'm working with at the time, we work with all of them. Um, and you know, it's, it's, it's just, it's a pretty fun job. You know, I'm, I'm blessed to have had the opportunities to, that I have as you, you know, working in the outdoor industry, it's a, it's a blessing being able to work somewhere that, that you enjoy. And, uh, you know, it's just like anything else, you know, it, it's a job and it feels like that some days, but most days it doesn't. Yeah. So, but but that's what I do. So how did you uh, kind of get into that role? Is is being an outdoor writer or, you know, quote-unquote communicator something that you always had, like, like a vision to do? Or is it something that just kind of happened? Well, I'd say a little bit of both, actually. Um, and I'll try to keep the, 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 the journey as short as possible as far as the description of it goes. But, you know, I've, growing up, I love the outdoors. I was um uh, I, I got into the outdoors because of my father and my grandfather they they both introduced me to to this madness that i call a passion now <laughs> and um you know it's just one of those things where my grandfather actually he was he was responsible for getting me into turkey hunting because that's all he did in the beginning he didn't deer hunt and my father got me into deer hunting and that's all he did he didn't turkey hunt and then after my grandfather got me into turkey hunting and my dad got me into deer hunting we all kind of started doing all of it together and since then for the last you know my lifetime pretty much uh we've all done it and my uncle does it and my cousins do it and so we all we all hunt together and it's it's pretty fun but whenever i got into high school and started thinking about careers and what i wanted to do and this that and the other and you know i'm I, just it you know i quickly realized that I wanted to do something in the outdoor industry. I didn't know what it was, but I knew I wanted to work with wildlife somehow, right. uh, whether it was biology or, or whatever. You know, I didn't know what it was that I was going to do at the time, but, you know, I had someone that uh, helped me kind of find that path, and they told me that, and this is the same advice I've given others who's at, who, who have asked me since then, but, you know, they said, find your strengths, find what you're good at, where your uh, skill sets uh, are and what they are and, you know, figure out how that translates into a career in the field that you want to be in. And that's what I did. You know, I was, you know, 
stronger with um, language arts and English than I was with anything and, and creative skills. You know, creatively, I was stronger than than I was, you know, mathematically or, or, you know, with biology or anything like that. So I decided, you know, that's what I was going to pursue. So I started trying to get published in hunting magazines and websites whenever I was a senior in high school. And it actually didn't get published for a year, maybe a little over a year, maybe a year and a half. Uh, it took a long time to get that first uh, piece published, and it was with a magazine called Kentucky Outdoors. And, um, you know, it just kind of snowballed from there. I started writing for other publications and kind of worked my way up and started writing for bigger publications such as North American Whitetail, Whitetail Journal, Field and Stream, Outdoor Life, different ones, and just kind of snowballed into a, a bigger freelance gig from there. And uh, eventually, whenever I was about halfway through college, the National Wild Turkey Federation offered me a, a job as their communication specialist. And I, I accepted that position and uh, transferred because they were going to let me work during the day and then take night classes to finish my degree. And so I transferred to the University of South Carolina and uh, worked for NWTF and finished my degree. And after a couple of years, uh, Realtree offered me the current position that I have now, and I've been there since. So that's the, that's the short and long of it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, I get a lot of questions, uh, too, not only on, Hey man, how, how, how do I get into the hunting industry? But also I, I have guys wanting to contribute to the sportsman's nation and they, you know, like I want to contribute, but I don't know what to write about. Do you have any advice to people on, because we all know the hunting industry is a small community. When you when you look at it, it's a small community. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I feel that every time, you know, even on the Sportsman's Nation, even on Nine Finger Chronicles, we tend to talk about the same things over and over and over again to the point it's almost like we're beating a dead horse. So what would your, what would your like, recommendation to someone be when they're looking to really stand out with the content that they're providing? Yeah, it's tough to be original today um, because, I mean, like a lot of industries, the outdoor industry is is a saturated market anymore, and and that doesn't just apply to you know product and the number of companies within each you know sect or niche or whatever you want to call it. It also has to do with content. You know, yeah. the content is saturated too, as you just mentioned, and um, you know it's tough to be original, but you know you have to rely on that passion, I guess. And it's, it's really a, you know, since we're, you know, we've been BSing this whole time, I guess it's, a, this is going to be a BS answer, but you got to rely on the passion for the outdoors to, uh, uh, to generate those original ideas. And, uh, you know, I, you have to spend a lot of time, you know, just thinking, you know, yeah. whenever I'm in a truck driving down the road, usually I don't have the radio on. Because as a job, as a content creator and and, and, out, and an editor and a writer and whatever you want to call me, you know, you know, big part of my job as big part of your job and everybody who's doing what we're doing, you got to come up with creative ideas. And, and so spending a lot of more time thinking about ideas and drafting up concepts and honing them and making them better, that's I would say I spend more time just thinking about those things. And yeah. that's not during the day. You know, I don't do that during my, during my eight hours a day, you know, that's spent on working and creating that content and editing and managing it. You know, I spend pretty much other waking moments, um, just thinking about concepts. Now, you know, it, it also helps to get out there and see what everybody else is doing and seeing what angles they're coming at it with. That way you can kind of think, okay, well, this is how everybody else is doing it. How can I be different? And then kind of come at it from a different angle that nobody has done before. So, yeah, you know, there's a lot of different methods as far as figuring out what that is. But the biggest thing, as you said, is just to be different because, you know, if it looks the same as what everybody else is doing or sounds the same, um, you know, people are just kind of going to, they're just going to glaze right over it and, you know, you're not going to get much return on the, the time invested in whatever that project is. Yeah. There's a lot of good points there. And it's funny you say that because I do a lot of what you just said where I don't have the radio on and it's basically just the white noise of the road. And that is where I do my most, like a lot of my thinking on, you know, Hey, what, what do I want to cover in some of my upcoming podcasts or what kind of, 
what kind of content do I want to have come through? And I have a little notepad that sits right beside me and I'll just take a note or two while I'm driving down the road. And that's, mm-hmm. that's where a lot of my ideas come up. Or like if I'm, if the, there's no kids at home, right. And they're all gone or the, and the wife's not here. And I'll say, I'm doing like some house chores, no music, no TV. And I'm just straight up thinking like just brainstorming the whole time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And another good place to do it, and this one's as cliche as anything is, but you know, setting out when you're setting out in the woods, you know, we spend a lot of time outdoors. You know, yeah. even though people, even though we don't spend as much time outdoors as outdoor, you know, people in the outdoor industry, you know, even though we don't spend as much time hunting as a lot of people who are outside the industry thinks we do, uh, we we do get to spend a fair bit in, in the woods. And so, you know, whenever there's downtime and you know the action's slow or whatever, um, you know, there's obviously uh, you know, uh, that's a good place to think of and, and, and brainstorm as well. So, um, something else too is, you know, something I've, I've noticed is as a content creator, you know, don't always come at it from my perspective. Um, there's only so much that we can do from our perspective and from our knowledge base, you know? Um, and so whenever you, you know, create content and you bring other people into the mix to help create that content, um, you know, that's going to help create more concepts and, and maybe different concepts than what you would have come up with on your own. So, you know, working with others too and, and, and tag teaming projects and making sure that uh, different perspectives are rolled up into the same product, uh, oftentimes improve said product. So there's a lot of different ways, as you've said, and as we've discussed, that you can help generate good content. Um, but, um, you know, the biggest thing is, is, is you do have to be a, you have to have a creative mind to begin with, cause it is difficult to do that. But it's, even if you don't have a creative mind, um, you know, maybe, uh, n- naturally it is something that you can generate or something that you can kind of cultivate over time. And, and maybe you're not naturally gifted at it. It is still something that you can practice over time and get better at. So maybe if it's something like, like me. I, I, you know, I've, I've always said, you know, I don't think I'm naturally gifted at anything. I have to work hard for everything I do because I'm, you know, I'm just not that smart, I guess, but <laughs> it's just one of those things where, uh, you know, content, it, it, as you said, and as we've been talking about, it's so, it's so saturated these days. It can be a difficult thing, but it's not an impossible thing. That's for sure. That's right. What's your favorite part about your job? Uh, I guess getting to work with like-minded people. Um, cause I've worked in other industries before I've worked in construction I've worked in sales. I've done, a, I've, I've done other things and, you know, don't get me wrong. Those things are great. You know, those things have their positive things too, but it's just like, I guess in this industry, it seems like most, most of the time, uh, everybody's just happier. And when you work with happier people, uh, you're happier. And so I'd say getting to work with other people, you know, just from a day to day standpoint, you know, that's great. Um, you know, being able to, I've been, you know, working in the outdoor industry, I've been afforded some opportunities, um, uh, to, to do some things that I probably wouldn't have been able to do if I hadn't been already, you know, working in the industry and, you know, getting to hunt certain places and what have you. Um, but you know, just, just being able to, use uh my creative skills and uh use my brain for 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 you know uh, however elementary that might sound to help generate content about hunting about the outdoors that will entertain and benefit and teach other people about the passion that that we all share um you know that's the most rewarding thing for me knowing that i'm able to help give back by in whatever capacity it might be whether i'm helping somebody i'm taking them on a hunt or or i'm helping somebody learn something through the content that i create that's probably the most rewarding thing for me knowing that i'm helping to give back to the to the outdoors and to the passion that's given so much to me yeah and that's a that's awesome you say that because i i want to get i wanted to get into this specific topic with um somebody in the hunting industry and i have a little notepad here of uh on my desk about conservation right and not necessarily like big giant products but just conservation in general and whether it is about deer or turkey or just water waterways or environmental um i guess environmental problems or whatnot 
do you think that the hunting industry is doing a good enough job, I guess, supporting other conservation efforts? And I know that's a really random high level question, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah. I mean, I think, I do think just in general, um, I guess my answer is twofold on that. Um, maybe even threefold, but, uh, yes and no is the, is the, is the, is the front end of that. I think the outdoor industry in general, um, and and not just the outdoor industry, but hunters as a whole, um, does a really good job of conservation. I think, uh, you know, you look at the Pittman Robertson, you look at, uh, the North American model of wildlife conservation. Nobody does it better than we do it. You look around the world and you see that. So I think that we're doing a great job. Yes. Um, I mean, you see, uh, you see different organizations supporting, uh, the conservation organizations, such as, uh, you know, Realtree is partnered with, uh, uh, Delta Waterfowl or partnered with Whitetails Unlimited. You know, they do work with Boone and Crockett and all these other conservation organizations. Um, so I do think, yes, on the front end, I think, I think we do a good job. Now, when you look at declining hunter numbers, you look at, um, uh, in some areas, not all, declining wildlife populations, um, it, it, it's obvious that we're not doing good enough. So while I think that, yes, we do a good job, that doesn't mean that we're doing good enough. Yeah. Um, because, and, 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 you know, who knows? Maybe we could strive as hard as we could, and it still wouldn't be good enough. We don't know the answer to that. Excuse me. But I think that um, I think that while we're already doing a really good job, I think it's going to take even more effort as a whole, as a collective effort, as a collective uh, group of, of outdoorsmen and, and, and even outside of the industry, um, I think, to help kind of bring it back, so to speak, and kind of slow the bleeding on the loss, uh, the, the, the reduction in number of hunters and the reduction in overall wildlife populations. I think we're going to have to do even better to help, uh, to help stop that and help bring it back in the direction we need it to be. Right. So hunters, and I, I, I'm sure you can attest to this. Hunters are some of the most passionate people that I've ever met right? Uh, when it comes to the animals that we go and hunt, the adventures that we go on, we are some really passionate people, almost as passionate as, let's say, someone who's a really big fan of a sports team or uh, passionate about cooking or something, whatever. But I feel like at times when we have this conversation about conservation, it almost becomes overwhelming because I feel like a lot of people a lot of people want to be involved in conservation efforts per se, but life gets in the way, right? We like, for me, I'm crazy. I'm, I'm starting to get into all these activities with my kids. We got dance, we got T-ball, you know, we, me and my wife both have uh, the jobs that we have to, you know, we have to make money and then everything that goes along with just an average life. What are some things that you think the average Joe who has a crazy busy life can do to still participate in conservation? Yeah. So, you know, I'll give two answers here, I guess, but, um, it doesn't cost much to join a, 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 a wildlife conservation organization, such as the national wild Turkey Federation or quality deer, uh, or the QDMA. Uh, or Whitetails Unlimited, or uh, Delta Waterfowl, or Rocky Mountain Elk. You know, you know, it, it's sad when you look at the number of of members within those organizations, and then you look at the ratio of how many deer hunters are, there are in America, and how many deer hunters are part of QDMA or Whitetails Unlimited. It's a pretty staggering difference. Um, the, the, the rate, the ratios and the rates of which people join wildlife conservation organizations is, is, is staggering, staggeringly low. Um, so uh, people need to join these conservation organizations, the $20, you know, that's part of it, but that's not all of it or, or whatever the, 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 uh, the cost of membership is, you know, it's not just the $20, 
uh, or the $30 that they're looking for. Whenever you join these organizations and you increase their membership, the more members they have, the more power they have. And that's just a simple fact of it. So, so, you know, it's not just the 20 or $30 that they're looking for. It's just your membership and you being a part of something that's bigger than, than yourself. You know, that's a big thing. Um, you know, obviously going to the banquets and stuff like that, staying engaged in the, in the organization is important too, but the more people who, who join those organizations, the better. And that's something small, you know, you know, uh, and everybody can afford that. If, even if you don't do anything else and you just join, um, you know, twenty thirty dollars you know, you know, anybody on any budget can do that. You know, that's, that's sacrificing one day out on, you know, out in town. You know, that's all that is. That's, that's not going to the movies one time and instead spending that money with a conservation organization that's trying to give back to, to the, to the passion and traditions and heritage that you enjoy. So that's one thing you can do that's at least, you know, very small. The second thing, which I think is even more important is the fact that we have uh, declining hunting, hunter numbers, um, you know, the baby boomer generation, they're starting to die off or getting old enough that they can't hunt anymore. And that we're fixing to see that feel that the effects of that pretty big. Uh, yeah. we're already feeling the effects from that, but within the next 10 years, it's, it's going to slap us in the face. And, you know, if, if everybody just takes one new hunter and I'm not bragging on myself here because I, I'm just as guilty as everybody else, but that's something that I decided I was going to do this year. And it's stuff I've done in the past too, but I don't do it as often as I should. And so I'm fussing at myself as much as I'm fussing at anybody. But this year I made, I was like, I'm going to take at least one new hunter this year, somebody who's never been before, or at least never, uh, you know, never really experienced or tasted success in the outdoors or really got a feel for what it was. And so that's what I decided I was going to do this turkey season. I was going to take at least one person, if not more, and try to help them get their first turkey. And, and, and I was successful at that. I, I put my mind to it and I did it. Now, again, I'm fussing at myself just as much as I am everybody else out there because, you know, that's something that, that I don't do like I should, because as you said, you know, life gets in the way, you know, you get busy, you have to work, you have this, you have that. And, and so if everybody out there just took one new hunter every year, we would double our numbers. We would double the number of hunters each year that we did that. And, and, and think about it. That's simple. That's, that, that's something that everybody can do. Yeah. Turkey season is long. Deer season is even longer. If you take the time, whether it's just one day, one weekend, you know, whatever the case might be, if you just take the time, and and it's and, and and really decide to move forward with that selfless act, and then take somebody else. And it's really not a selfless act. I mean, it is a selfless act because you're helping somebody else, but it's also a selfish act when you think about it because we're trying to preserve the the uh, uh, the lifestyle that we love and the lifestyle that we cherish. And so even though we're doing it to help others, we're also doing it to help ourselves. So if you are a selfish person out there and you're like, I don't want to spend the time to take somebody else. Well, if you take somebody else and introduce them to the outdoors, um, you're really helping yourself because if we don't do that, the numbers are pretty bad. You know, if we don't do that, we're not going to have hunting much longer. And that's not a scare tactic. That's just the truth because while we, you know, we might, we'll always have hunters, the the lower the, the the percentage and i think what it is it right now is at four four or five percent you may know better than me yeah something um like as far as some as far as the number of hunters in america goes four or five percent of, of americans hunt today that number is going to be dropping even lower within the next 10 years and it's probably going to end up down around three three and a half percent within the next 10 years i would say if not lower right. you know the lower that that number gets and that percentage gets uh, the less power we have and the less voice that we have politically. Um, luckily, most people, even those who don't hunt, still at least approve of it. And that's really the only hope we have. But we, we've got to, to, to bolster our ranks and, and, and just take the time to be selfless and take somebody else hunting. And again, I've been just as guilty of not doing that as everybody else out there. But that's the biggest thing, I think, in my opinion, that we can do as hunters is just to take the time to introduce one new person every year. And if we do that, we double that percentage every year. Yeah, that's uh, a a ton of good points all wrapped in there. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about (laughs) this is this is what I always play with right in my head. Right. I look at the wall, my wall, and I have 
uh, you know, I'm from Iowa. I'm blessed to hunt big antler deer. I look at my wall and I'm just happy. Uh, you know, I have big old mature bucks. Not everybody has the opportunity to hunt big old mature bucks, but I feel like the hunting industry as a whole, uh, really focuses on big antlers, right? And maybe that's changing. Maybe it's not right. And I know that if we want to introduce more people to hunting, I feel like we need to step away from the big, you know, you know, big antlers, mature Mm -hmm. deer type of tactic that we as hardcore hunters always strive for. Right. So it's almost a Mm -hmm. catch. It's almost like a catch 22. Right. I like to do this, but I feel if we need to preserve hunting tradition, I need to preach less about hunting big antlered mature deer and just hunting deer. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah, I agree 100 percent. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, do you, I, do you I, think the hunting I, industry I, as a whole is kind of, I don't know, almost put it, hurting itself? You know, that that is a good question. It's something that I think about a lot. And I, and I you know, I'm not on the knowing. I don't have the, uh, the answers to everything. I, I probably don't have answers to most things, but I, I do think that there is something to that. Uh, I know me personally, you know, the primary reason that I hunt is to, um, is to put meat in the freezer you know i love to eat wild game you know my wife and i we just fixed venison burgers and had them for 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 two or three nights in a row you know and we eat you know wild game every month every week so you know the primary reason that i do it is is to to fill the freezer and because i love to eat wild game you know but you know at the same time also like you said i like to shoot big bucks you know i'm you know while i was is a little better than kentucky in that regard you know i'm blessed to be in kentucky where you know, we have good genetics and good age structures and, and good healthy, you know, populations, good solid one to 1.5, you know, ish buck to doe ratios, you know, so we, we have a pretty good here too. And, but yeah, I mean, you know, I think as an industry, I think we do have to kind of refocus and kind of just, just think about where we come from and the mindset that we're in when we generate the content that we produce you know, whether it be for television or for magazines or, or say, you know, for, for even podcasts, like, like what you do and what you're doing right now, you know, you know, I think as a whole, we've got to kind of rethink it. And I'm not saying that we have to apologize or anything because that's not it. But as far as the, the, the ratios of the content that we put out, I think it might be a little too focused on that, especially for these newer hunters, because a lot of new hunters look at this and they're like, oh, well, you know, they look at social media or they look at magazines or they look at TV and they like, they look at all of this that's going on and they see all the success and all these big deer and then they go try to do it, whether it be on public land or really good private land and they just don't know what they're doing yet because they're new hunters or whatever the case might be. And they don't have the success that they see everybody else around them having. And then they think, oh, well, I must be doing it wrong. Or, well, you know, I don't know what I'm doing. Or, you know, whatever they, you know, surmise or whatever conclusion they come to. And then they, you know, they let it go. They don't do it anymore because they, you know, they think that that they aren't good enough to do it or they aren't getting the results that everybody else is getting. So I think we have to refocus the content and just make it fun. We got to make hunting fun and make it seem fun. And, not, and I shouldn't even say make it seem fun because it is fun. It's not like we're telling a lie. Fun, hunting is fun, and we yeah. you know we don't have to apologize for that. Um, you know, but but a lot of times with the content that we produce, we don't have the new hunter in mind, and that's something that we've got to do uh, moving forward because we are losing hunters. We've got to produce content that's going to be inviting. Um, you know, that's going to welcome people into the fold. And I'm not saying that we have to quit producing content on big deer because I, I think that still needs to be a part of the picture. Because that's, you know, for, for a lot of existing hunters and some, you know, and even new hunters, you know, that's that's an, an inviting part of it. But I think we have to temper it just a bit and, and maybe look at the ratio of the content, the types of content and the subject matter that we're putting out and maybe uh, just scale it back a bit and focus more on the fun aspects, the, the educational aspects of hunting and and teaching people how to do it and that's something that we try to do at realtree.com instead of writing so much about how to kill big deer you know we're just just you know which we still do that don't get me wrong um 
but we're trying to scale that back just a bit and focus more on just general hunting content, you know, right. how to blood trail a deer, how to cook wild game, you know, how to, how to scout a deer, you know, and, and, and when we're, you know, a lot of the times when we come at that, we're not coming at it from an angle of, okay, well, let's just focus on big deer. It's just deer in general. Um, I do think quality, you know, quality deer management, um, is a good thing, you know, because, you know, whenever, you know, and, and so, so I don't want to, I don't want to take it so far as to say, oh, well, we can't ever talk about killing big deer again, because whenever people think about big deer, a lot of the times they have a misconception. And I think that's partly our fault because we haven't told the story correctly, right. uh, or, or efficiently enough. You know, when we talk about big deer, it's not just about us shooting something with big antlers. It's about, it's about managing the resource. And, and I know that sounds kind of, it sounds weird and, and, and might even sound unbelievable at times unless we tell it in the right way, which I, again, I think we haven't done, but nobody loves the white-tailed deer more than the white-tailed deer hunter. And as you know, and as, as anybody who knows that way of life knows, um, or, or has lived, uh, you know, you just have to remember, and, and when we deal with new hunters or trying to educate people about hunting and and bring people into the fold we got to remember to tell them that you know shooting big deer isn't just about putting big antlers on the wall it's about managing the resource you know as you do as i do as all hunters out there as all responsible hunters out there do you know we're always trying to leave the lands that we hunt in a better place than where we found them and you know we want the you know the wildlife and you know the, the the vegetation the trees the the forest you know the animals everything about the the habitat and the ecosystem there whenever we get there and the, you know from the time that we hunt it from the first time to the time that we hunt it the last time we want it to be better off and in a better place when we leave it than when we found it and that's part of managing deer and and managing for age structures and allowing deer to reach older age classes now at the same time i know every everybody out there has different goals some people just want to fill the freezer some people just want to shoot a big deer you know some people want this some people want that and everybody has slightly different goals in mind and i think we have to be respectful that when people come to the outdoors although 99 percent of the time the primary food is is the primary reason is for food which it should be you know there are other little sub uh sub concepts and sub you know desires i guess or sub interests uh underneath that like shooting big deer so for me personally you know my primary goal is to fill the freezer every year and so i'll shoot at least a a doe or two if not you know generally more like like this past season i I think i filled the, the freezer with three deer don't quote me on that three does and uh, then I, I I killed my one buck, but I waited until I saw the right deer and to to fill my buck tag. So you know I'll I'll, I'll fill my doe tags, and I, you know to to make sure I get the freezer filled. But then also at the same time, you know I won't use my buck tag on a younger deer. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm not I'm not criticizing anyone who chooses to shoot a year and a half or a two and a half year old deer or, or buck. You know, that if that's their thing, that's their thing. But for me personally, because of my personal interest, because I do like that chess match of hunting mature deer and and and, and the adventure that, that comes in it and, and it's and, and really uh if you hunt one particular place um and you get to know particular deer over time, um it's really you know, it's, it sounds weird to say, but you also build relationships and then it is bittersweet when you finally do tag that deer because you know that deer is not on the landscape anymore you won't ever hunt that deer again and it, and that can be really hard to explain um that whole that relationship and we won't even get into that today um uh, but you know it, yeah it, it's a tough question to answer and that's a really long-winded answer on my part but i do think as a whole the industry uh, while i'm not saying that we have to apologize or should change everything that we do i do think that we need to make sure that we come at it from a standpoint that's more inviting to new hunters and is more truthful as far as the reasons that that we do and i guess you know the industry you know you know as any industry is you know a lot of it sadly is driven by dollars yes and big deer sell you know, and that's why a lot of the, the, the media outlets, uh, it doesn't matter what type of media you're talking about, whether it's television, magazines, whatever, 
um, you know, oftentimes big deer sell and they sell better than other things. But I think we're starting to see a finally starting to see a shift in that. And um, I think, you know, just good quality how to content that just teaches people how to do things. I think that's going to be king moving forward. Yeah. So let me ask you a very high level. This is like a three tier question, but it's just one question, right? It's going to be high level, but the answer could be complex, right? So why do you hunt? Yeah, well, so many different things. Um, And it's funny you ask that because I just wrote an article on uh it's it's not exactly on this concept but it's it's kind of uh very similar but i I just wrote it on for realtor.com it's called the classic deer camps the impending death of hunting's oldest tradition and you know even though it's kind of focused on you know the deer camp uh atmosphere it still revolves around hunting and self and so a lot of reasons but primarily and i shouldn't even say primarily but you know as i said a minute ago uh, the first and foremost reason I hunt is, is, is for the wild game venison. You know, I, it's, it's, it's good, healthy food that I know where it came from. And, and, and I just like to eat it. I like to eat wild game. And so is my family. And so that's, that's the primary reason, but other reasons, you know, uh, the people, you know, you know, the people in my life, hunting with family, hunting with friends, the places I've always said that, uh, hunting, is almost about is almost as much about the places that you hunt as the animals that you hunt themselves especially if you hunt you know the same place over time and you get attached to it you know the, the memories under the old oak tree down in the bottom you know the beech tree up on the ridge that you sat up against and shot you know 10 gobblers from you know you know the places are just as much a part about it as anything you know the process you know as i said we try to leave places as good or better um uh, when we leave them as when we found them and so planting food plots and doing habitat uh, management and, and and doing everything that we do as hunters is, is a part of it. the growth you know i think we grow as not only as hunters uh, but but also uh, as people as you spend time in the outdoors you know um, for every lesson that there is to be learned about hunting there's an equally important lesson uh, life lesson to be learned uh, in, in each adventure or time of field. Uh, the atmosphere is a big part of it, you know. Um, you know, I, you know, I, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a spiritual person. You know, I, I believe in God, and I, you know, I go to church, and you know, I have that relationship with Him. And, and to be honest, whenever I'm in the outdoors, you know, I, I, I feel as close to, to Him there as I do anywhere. And so the atmosphere is a big part of it. Uh, the camaraderie is obviously huge. Um, spending time around a, a hunt camp campfire or in a deer blind or, you know, setting up against a couple of trees close by as you, you know, you're sitting there with your buddies trying to sweet talk a long beard into range. You know, the camaraderie is a big part of it. You know, over time you build relationships with people, whether it be family or friends or whoever, uh, with that camaraderie. Um, as I've already said, the food is a huge part of it. Um, but you know, there's so many little things, the conversations that you have over time, you know, uh, with people and, and, and the relationships that develop. Uh, but I guess the biggest part, you know, the things, and the, and this is really, uh, these last three things are really, you know, the culmination of all of that are the traditions, the heritage and the stories, uh, you know, the traditions, uh, build up over time to create the heritage and the stories are that are told throughout time or, or what keep those heritage, those traditions and heritage alive. But the, the, the long answer there, or those are the things that, that come to my mind first, whenever it comes to the reasons that I hunt. Yeah. It's crazy. Um, you mentioned something about being spiritual and, 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 uh, this closeness to God that you get when you're out in, in nature. I, feel like I'm somewhat of a spiritual person, but not very religious. Uh, but there is, but I have the similar, a similar, uh, feel, I guess when I'm out in nature and that is when I am out, like nature to me has such a healing power that when mm-hmm. I am down in the dumps or I am just feeling stressed or, you know, all these negative things that happen in life, I feel like when I just go on a walk or on a hike with my kids or, you know, go step into the woods to check trail cameras or whatever, uh, if I'm outside, I get this 
this healing power from mother nature that just makes me happy. And I think that, Mm -hmm. that mixed with then pursuing game, which is, you know, such a, um, I don't know, like prime, you know, the, I don't know what's the word primeval or uh, primitive, like a primitive urge. Mm -hmm. Cause we are in fact animals, you know, and like mm-hmm. all that together, just like I get this high almost, and uh, you can't get that yeah. high anywhere else, man. No, absolutely. You know, being out there uh, in creation, you know, created, you know, for us by our creator, and, and we're a part of it, and we're wrapped up in it. And um, you know, it's 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 also funny because you know the research shows those who spend a lot of time in the outdoors and uh, in nature live longer. Uh, and there's a reason for that. Yeah. And so, you know, it, 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 there, there's something to it. It's not just a coincidence you now. I mean, I guess that doesn't apply to those who get attacked by a grizzly or, <laughs> or, or get chomped on by a gator down in the bayou. But, <laughs> but you know, it, it, it's, it's the, 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 the research does show there is something to that. You know, it does help reduce stress and, you know, you know, if it's, if I've got a sacrifice, you know, and I say that, you know, in air quotes, if I got to sacrifice a little of my time in the outdoors so that I, you know, have a heart attack at 85 instead of 55, you know, I'm willing to sacrifice that. That's right. Amen. All right. right. So you mentioned something about stories being part of the reason that you hunt. And I want to, I want to get into a couple stories here uh, as we wind down the podcast. I want you you know, and I'm sure, how old are you? I'm 26. Okay. 26 years old. How long, and you've been hunting since almost day one? For, well, pretty much. And, and of course, uh, you know, while I wasn't the one packing a gun or, you know, um, or, you know, packing a bow or whatever the case might be, my, I was blessed that my dad, you know, from the time I could walk just about, I was probably, I don't know, probably, well, not from the time I could walk, but you know, I was real small, probably yeah. four, maybe five. Uh, my dad was getting me out in the woods whenever he would go. So, yeah, even though I wasn't the one quote, you know, quote hunting, you know, my dad, uh, I'm, I'm blessed that he got me out there from the start and, and had me in the outdoors. So yes, from, from a very early age, I've been out there experiencing what, what the outdoors has to offer. All right. So stories, I want you to talk to me about one of your most memorable or maybe life changing stories that you've had while being a hunter yeah well i mean again it's going to sound cliche because this is the one that everybody goes to but uh, to this day it was the most uh powerful uh spiritual you might even say even uh moment that i had and it was my first year and and i know it's cliche to to, to refer back to that one but it's funny because I've, I've had so many deer hunts, so many successful deer hunts and since then, but there is not one hunt uh, that stands out in my mind clear or is more vivid than the story of my first deer. And I was a, a small boy whenever, whenever I got it. And, and it's kind of interesting because, you know, you think, okay, well, the deer you killed three years ago or a deer you killed four years ago you think that that would be more vivid in your mind than the one that you killed however many years ago and uh, you know that's just not the case for me but i'll never forget the the feeling of whenever you know and not just the feeling of when i shot the deer but everything that culminated because i hunted for several years uh, and packed a gun for several years and a bow for several years before i actually tagged my first deer and so I, I had to earn it, you know, it just wasn't something that was given to me. And whenever I finally, you know, uh, w- was able to experience all the different things and learn all the different lessons that led up to that first, uh, uh, and I wouldn't even say first successful hunt, because I don't think you have to kill something for it to be a successful hunt, but that first field tag, um, you know, I remember all those little things and those little emotions and little lessons that led up to that. But whenever it actually finally happened and it kind of reached the pinnacle, um, you know, that moment was one that will stand out uh, in in my mind and my memory until I die. But that one changed a lot in me because that just, you know, even though I enjoyed it up until then, you know, that first taste of, of, of success as a hunter, as a predator, and that's what we are. We're, we're an apex predator. That first taste of that, uh, uh, of that uh, was just flipped a switch. 
And, you know, ever since then, you know, that, that changed me and it put me on a course in life. And, and, you know, if it hadn't been for that, I wouldn't be where I am today. And I don't even mean that as, a, as in my, you know, in my career, uh, I just wouldn't be where I am or who I am as a person. And, uh, so yeah, I would, I would have to say that even though it's cliche is I'll get out that the, the first, my first deer would have to be probably one of the biggest stories. Now I've had so many since then, um, that are, are, are really close to, to being just as, uh, integral, uh, integral as to who I am as, you know, that are, you know, just as important to me, you know, taking my wife and seeing her get her first deer, seeing her get her first turkey, uh, spending time with all the people that I've taken throughout the years, seeing them get their uh, uh, first deer, first turkey, or whatever it was. I mean, just I think it was two years ago I took my wife's grandfather and uh, my grandfather-in-law and saw him get his first deer at 70-some years old. You know, all these different little memories and all the stories that, that have, have culminated in the last 20 years. Um, you know, there's, there's so many important ones, and they all build up and they all culminate and they all go together, you know, in, in, in chapters and in the the book, I guess that you could be say, uh, and everybody has one. Everybody has a book full of chapters that uh, that that are written over time and throughout their uh, quote unquote career as a hunter. Uh, and I don't mean career as in job, but but throughout their lifespan and lifetime as a hunter, everybody has chapters and stories and everybody has stories to tell. Uh, everybody has stories to share with others. And I think the stories um, kind of they kind of uh, go together and, and the stories are a big part of keeping our traditions and heritage alive. And uh, like I said earlier, there's no better place to tell those than a deer camp. But and it, it's a sad thing whenever uh, you know that just even as the number of hunters decline, the the deer camp tradition is declining even faster. And so that's that's a sad thing too. But yeah, you know, so many stories and that uh, are important to me. Um, but but I think I do think stories are a big part of our of our uh, of our heritage. Amen. Now. We have about time for a real quick, uh, one more quick story. And, uh, you know, the first, the first hunt, the first successful hunt, the first deer, whatever is, was a, a big influential moment in your life. But then there's this time, right? Where we as hunters want to put the pieces of the puzzle together. We want the strategy to be there and almost, uh, convince ourselves or the you know all the hard work that we've put in in the off season and all the education that we've given ourselves on how deer move and just becoming a bet, better hunter overall uh do you have a story like that that just made you feel proud about i guess being that apex predator and being that you know saying you know what i i sealed the deal today and it was all because of me yeah, you know, I mean, that's a that point there is that's kind of where it goes as far as why deer hunters enjoy hunting big deer because I mean, let's just be honest here, it's harder to kill a mature white-tailed deer than an immature white-tailed deer, and so right. it challenges you, uh, and, and that's not something that 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 neither you nor I will ever apologize for. Uh, I know because it's that's part of why we hunt. It's not the primary reason why we hunt, you know, but it, it's it's one of the reasons why. At least it's it's what we save our buck tag for anyway. And um, you know, it, you know, I guess last year was a good example of that. Um, I killed uh, uh my biggest deer that I've ever killed and it was a uh official growth score ended up being 163 and 6/8 as an 8-pointer. And it was the the it was just kind of what you were talking about That's there. Big. You know, I, I'd followed that deer from the pre the previous season until last season, whenever I, I was able to tag him. And, um, I just implemented a lot of different lessons that I've learned throughout the years and the seasons to, to bring that to fruition and to make that happen. And, you know, I, I would be, I'd be, you know, there was a little bit of blessing involved whenever I got that deer on the ground, but, you know, a lot of the lessons and things that I've learned throughout the years and, uh, you know, those things came together and the knowledge that I, you know, I had accrued about mature whitetails and, and big deer and how to hunt them 
those things all played in together and wrapped up into a, a, a final hunt that uh, ended up helping me be successful on that particular deer. Uh, Tactic-wise, I'll throw one quick little, even though there's a lot of lessons that I've learned or relearned from this particular deer and a lot of different tactical nuggets that, you know, are wrapped up into the story of the hunt for this particular deer. Um, one thing that I used was to hunt this deer on a just-off wind, which for those who aren't familiar with a just-off wind, and really have to give credit to, to Dan Infall because I'd say he's the first person that I've heard of that actually started talking about that a long time ago. Uh, you know, there's plenty of people who talk about it ever since then. But, you know, hunting this deer on a just-off wind where – you know, I'm not. I'm not here to say that every single deer walks into the, you know, with their nose into the wind. If that was the case, they'd all be sunbathing on the west coast. But, you know, this deer does. You know, he's a spark, and he used the wind to his advantage. And the way he come out, um, you know, and, and come out of his bedding area, even though he wasn't walking directly into the wind, um, when he left it, you know, he, you know, that deer, he, he'd been around. He knew where I could set up and where I couldn't for him to smell me and I knew it was risky but I hunted this deer on a just off wind and I had one very very small window and if the if the wind shifted at all you know I was messed up I was I, I it was over I was done but I literally because you know I kept checking on the wind and I was dropping um you know uh some and I use I use powder I like to use uh, uh I'm going blank here uh, flour I mean I use like to use flour to check the wind you can also use milkweed and a lot of other stuff, but I kept tabs and kept dropping and kept dropping and I kept tabs on where my scent cone was primarily located. And I had to stop that deer about 10 steps before he entered that scent cone to kill him. And, you know, he knew, you know, cause I, I get, and it's hard for me to paint a picture and I, I'll try to do it. He, he, he was coming through a little bit of a, a clover patch, a, a clover field, really pretty small. And he was coming out of a bedding area that was kind of to my Northwest and I was on a tree line that ran due north, you know, due north, you know, north south. Yeah. And when and the wind was out of the east, so you know, as that deer is leaving that bedding area and he's coming through that small clover patch, you know, he's smelling anything that's in that woods to the east of him, and which was where I was at. So if he'd have made it just a few more steps, he would have he would have busted me. And I had to take a slightly quartering to me shot to make it happen, which I'm not a big fan of. But he was. You know, and I wasn't going to take a bad opportunity shot. He was he was broadside enough that I could get an ethical kill, and he ran and and fell over. You know, within just a few seconds. But I'd say that's probably the, the best um, uh, how-to advice as far yeah. as that particular story goes. Is to just uh, if you can give the deer the wind, even though it sounds counterintuitive. I've had more success over the years, especially recent years following that advice and maybe giving the deer just a little bit of of uh, of the wind because they are more you know even though they don't walk with their nose into the wind i think deer are more likely to enter the open or or leave the 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 security of their uh of their beds um if they have that wind in some sort of advantage i think they're more likely to move further from their beds in daylight if they do have that advantage so if you give them the wind a little bit um it is risky but it's paid off for me throughout the years yeah that's uh that's a fact and i think uh that's the same with me man like playing the wind and just being more observant or being more aggressive with how and where i set up my tree stands uh has definitely led i can honestly say it definitely led to to uh, my success as well but Mr. Mm -hmm. Honeycutt, man, well, I... you've got a, you've got a you've got a stack of big ones on the wall. So I know you, you know a thing or two about it. Just a, and <laughs> probably, I tell you what, probably I, way more than I do. I, I would say that my success rate is still nowhere close to probably even thirty percent. Right? I mean, I I still get busted, or not necessarily busted, but you know because you still got to find the right deer. But just mm -hmm. the I don't know the success rate there on when you're when you're aggressive is still it's not automatic right you know what i mean so uh it's uh it's a, oh, it's yeah. a teeter-totter right it's just sometimes oh, you yeah. win sometimes you lose exactly and that's a great point for all the any new hunter out there or 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 uh, or uh, 
prospective hunters out there or somebody who's looking to get into hunting that's it you know what what you just said dan that hits the nail on the head you know even though you've killed big deer your entire life or for a long time you know uh people even though you, you, you post a picture on social media or whatever i'm not saying you do but if you did uh if you post a big wall of of deer um and you post that on social media and all the people out there that like it and comment on it they see that success but they don't see all of the little mistakes and all the uh the times that you you didn't succeed and that's not i'm just saying that's strictly to you that's any successful hunter out there who has a lot of big deer to their name you know there were a lot of mistakes and, and a lot of hard work quite frankly that went into all the success that 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 is had there and that's something that's important for new hunters to understand is, you know, you're not going to just kill a big deer every time you go to the woods. You, you know, you're probably going to go to the woods 30 or 40 or maybe 50 times before you kill a big deer, maybe more. And you might go seasons without killing big deer. So, you know, it's, that's an important point to remember. But but I, I certainly appreciate you having me on and, and uh, think a lot of you and what you do there. You have a, an incredible podcast. So it's just it's been an honor and a privilege to, to be on as a guest. I certainly appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen, we're done with this podcast, and uh, I tell you what, thanks to Josh for hopping on. Really love the conversation. Huge shout out, as always, to all of you for taking time out of your day to download and listen. I don't know if you can hear that right now, but I have a really angry toddler knocking at my door, and uh, that means it's time for Daddy to go uh, get out of the nursery, get him to bed, and uh, I don't know. It's, it really sucks having a your office and a nursery in the same room. Uh, it just limits what I'm trying to accomplish here. But that is just me venting my frustrations in life on you guys. And that's completely okay. <laughs> but if you haven't already, go check out the social media. You know, Instagram and Facebook, please. Please, 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 Instagram and Facebook. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download uh, your podcast. And other than that, please, 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 please have a good day. Oh, I forgot. Huge shout out to all the partners of the podcast, Hunter Safety Systems, Lone Wolf, Wasp Broadheads, Ripcord, Ozonics, Prime, and that's it. And have a good day if you're going to be in a tree. Our friends at Hunter Safety Systems are reminding us to please wear your damn safety harness. <laughs>